Well, hello and welcome to another Alliance Against Occlusion Restraint live uh, presentation. Uh, really excited to have you here today. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Occlusion Restraint. Uh, started the Alliance Against Occlusion Restraint um, about uh, two and a half years ago now, and really started it to raise awareness about the issue of restrained seclusion in schools across the country. That said, we're very concerned about the use of restrained seclusion anywhere they're happening, whether they're at schools, residential treatment facilities, psychiatric facilities, hospitals, senior care, anywhere these things are happening. Uh, we know there are far better things that we can be doing that are that are far better for working with anyone. Uh, our mission is really to educate the public and connect people together who are dedicated to changing minds, laws, policies, and practices so that we can eliminate these practices from schools and really beyond. Uh, our vision is to see safer environments for everyone, safer schools, safer hospitals, whatever they may be. Uh, really excited today, as, as you guys all all probably already appreciate, uh, I really enjoy doing these uh, presentations that we do, um, not only to have an opportunity to learn from amazing people, but to, to meet people that I you know really think highly of and, and highly respect. Today is no exception. We have Robin Peters Bennett joining us today for a very special presentation and interview. Uh, you'll have an opportunity, of course, to ask questions during today's event and encourage you to do so. I've talked to Robin and we encourage your questions during the presentation. Uh, there should be a few, little bit of time afterwards as well. And as always, the presentation today is being recorded. So it will be available on YouTube, Facebook, and as an audio podcast after the fact. So uh, with that, let me go ahead and uh, bring Robin up to join us. And I'm going to do a brief introduction here. Robin, thanks for joining us. And, and let me tell the audience a little bit about who you are. Uh, you are a LPC CMHS um, is a psychotherapist and uh, activist for children specializing in the treatment of mental health issues due to child maltreatment. Uh, you've directed inpatient residential treatment programs, worked with families and child protective services, foster care, and post-adoption. Uh, you are a phase two certified child trauma academy in the neurosequential model of therapeutics. Uh, love that, that work on the, the neurosequential model. Uh, of course, you're a national speaker. Uh, I remember the first time I became aware of your work, it was seeing the, uh, the TED talk that you did. Um, and, and that, I'll, in fact, I'll share that with our audience here uh, in the Facebook page, but really amazing talk uh, that talked about uh, spanking and domestic violence. Uh, you also founded StopSpanking.org, uh, an online parenting resource for parents and clinicians to better understand the harm that can happen from, from hitting children. And you're a board member of the U.S. Alliance to End the Hitting of Children, leading the movement to end spanking in, in the United States. So we are really, really excited to have you here. Robin, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here, Guy. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm so happy to be able to speak to your audience today. And I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Fantastic. So I will let you go ahead and get you. I know you've got a slide deck ready to share with us. Right. So, so if do. you want to bring your slide deck up into PowerPoint, I will go ahead and bring it up on the screen. Uh, and okay. as I do, um, there we go. We see your slide deck. I want to remind people that are watching today, and I already see some comments coming on, um, but I want to remind people that are watching this that, um, you know, please ask questions, make comments while this is going on. Rob and I were talking about, um, you know, how nice it is to kind of have a conversation around some of this. Um, so we're, we're definitely going to have a lot of opportunity for you to provide your comments. So with that, Robin, I'm going to hand you the, uh, the, the talking stick and let you take it away. And you disappeared. That's that oh, I not... only did that. I know I'm tricking you, but I'm still here. That's right, that's <laughs> I'm still right. here because I realize I'm on this PowerPoint and I have no idea what time it is. So I thought I'd grab my little cell phone here. Hopefully no one will ring me. I'll turn it down and that way I can look at the clock. Sounds because otherwise good. I'll talk for five hours and you guys. Yeah, and, well, you know, you know, and I might not stop you because I think people would, uh, people would really um, get a lot of value from what you have to say. I, I remember uh, the first time I had an opportunity to talk to you. We just had a phone call, and it was probably about a year ago or so. Um, but just being so moved by the, the work that you're doing and the perspective that you bring, so I think we're all really excited to to have you here today. And I'll let you go ahead and take your presentation, and uh, we'll break in with questions as we have them. Beautiful. And by the way, so, uh, I do want to let you know, we, we've already heard some uh, from the crowd that a five-hour talk would be amazing. So, oh, you know. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's great. Um, okay. Well, here we go. So the first thing I just want to begin with is this idea that really changed my life. It changed the way I think about children, the way I think about all my relationships. Um, 
thanks to Dr. Bruce Perry, who is a huge teacher of mine. Uh, and that is that behavior is state dependent. And really, everything is state dependent, as it turns out. And what do I mean by state? What I mean is your body and how your body is feeling at any given time, not on an emotional level, but on a sensation level. In other words, your stress response system network, is it operating in such a way that it is in a relaxed state and it's receptive and open and curious? Or is your system working hard to protect you from perceived threat? And so uh, what that means is that we all can look certain ways at different times and that our behavior fluctuates based on state. And interestingly, so does IQ. IQ can be 30 points different depending on your state of arousal. Your ability to empathize with others is state dependent. So when you're really angry uh, and your state is aroused, of course, this is when we say things that we really regret later on. Uh, so when you think, well, that's what they really believed all along, it's like, not really. It's just mm. what their lower brain believes because their lower brain is frightened, even if we don't necessarily feel frightened. So there can be a real disconnect between how our body feels, how our emotions are, and what we think. Uh, and so when we're thinking about children who have experienced trauma and also ourselves, because 60% uh, of all Americans have some form, and it's probably much higher, actually, I was reading some studies recently, but have some form of trauma. Uh, so it's very common and it's good to normalize it and to help us understand that trauma is not, particularly in children, I'm going to speak mostly to children, complex developmental trauma, trauma that happens when children are very small, it's called complex and developmental because those injuries have a profound effect on the developing brain over time. And so um, we know that, um, it's interesting, I, I sort of lost uh, my train of thought and that's interesting. So this is a nervous system response I'm having and partly it's because I'm talking to my PowerPoint, and I can't see Guy, uh, and so I sort of lost my my um, place in my mind. But um, so, you want to help me, Guy? What was I saying? Well, you know, I, I was just thinking. Help usually, the effect is, usually the effect is the opposite. Usually, I, I I make people lose their their thoughts when they they look at me. So. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, no, it's good for me. I get the head nod and I stay. That's right. And, that's right. Know. Well, I, I assure you I was nodding and, and smiling, but yeah, I think you were kind of really getting to um, kind of the, 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 the impact of the complex trauma and talking about, um, you know, you prior, you were kind of talking about the lower brain and. Um, yeah. Right. And so like with, thank you. That was so mm -hmm. helpful. So like with children that have this complex trauma, uh, or even episodic trauma, sometimes the behavior makes them appear less, you know, they frighten us. They seem more antisocial. They feel more unempathic and selfish and self-centered. And so it's really important to understand that that is not, it's not appropriate to create a character picture of your child when they're like that. That's not their true nature. It's not who they're going to be in the future. It's simply an undeveloped nervous system. It's an undeveloped stress response system network. And so what's happening is their physiology is going into a state of arousal. And for some children, it's chronic. Uh, and so they can't express their potential and what would be available to them in their upper brain. So things like being able to think of others, being able to share, to negotiate, to follow rules to focus on their assignment. I'm going to think about schools because of this group is very interested in seclusion and restraint. So children can participate in group activities and be a group citizen when their brain is fully online. Uh, and when it isn't, what the last thing we want to do is have interventions that further alarm the stress response system. And so I love this picture because what you see here 
is um, what Stephen Porges would call healthy neuroceptive communication. But what you're really seeing here is a mother who clearly loves her boy. I mean, you could just feel it. Like if I just look at it, I just feel calmer. And part of what's happening on a physiological level here is she's a little bit lower than him. She's expressing lots of feeling of care. Her face is soft. And she's smiling, and she's there, and you can see him tilt his head. And when you tilt your head, it's a real sign of safety. So you do this, and you're rigid. When you're frightened, you keep your head straight forward, which is why a lot of people have a lot of neck stress, because they're, they're holding their body from a state of arousal. Um, but this child is tilting his head, and he's connecting. You can even see his chest moving toward her. So really understanding our physiological body language and really appreciating that we send signals of safety or we send signals of distress to children. And to really, I think this right here in and of itself would really guide um, our preoccupation with sort of behavioral interventions and lots of talking and cognitive interventions. And if we could notice when a child is moving out of regulation sooner, particularly in groups, because children in schools are so taxed because social engagement is a very high-functioning, higher-brain <laughs> capability. It's way up here. So uh, for children to be around other children is hyper-stimulating and exciting, but it's not necessarily regulating. And that's why a lot of children come home after school and they're grouchy and they're out of it. And all they'll say is fine if you ask them how they are and is because their nervous system has been working overtime to try to track children, read feelings. And a lot of what's happening in school uh, is not mediated by this loving mother, for example. It would only be the memory of her inside of him that's going to help him navigate complicated social relationships where there's not really a mature person that can mirror feelings, that can help him know what's going on inside of his body, that can help him navigate things. So school is in and of itself already an environment of stress for children. <laughs> you know, that, that sentence on that slide, um, you know, about behavior being state dependent, yeah. um, you know, it's so interesting because, you know, as, as I think about schools, as you were talking about the school example there, one of the things that we sometimes hear, and I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll not, I see your head nodding, you won't see mine, but it is this idea that, um, you know, people sometimes believe because a child can do something in a, a certain time frame that they should be able to do something all the time. And, and that really negates this idea about state dependency. People think, well, I know the child's capable of doing X, so they right. should always be able to do X. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how state, um, you know, kind of impacts what, and, and I think you were hitting on that, but how it impacts uh, that ability. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, think about if you need to balance your checkbook or, you know, now some people are night people, but I am not. So uh, nighttime, someone says, balance your checkbook. <sighs> That's grounds for me to like completely go into uh, shutdown <laughs> because my brain, you know, I'm just not smart at night. I like movies. I'm funny. I'm social, but doing real analytical stuff or thinking about it, doing a presentation like this, you know, I need to be doing it in the morning. I actually put this together this morning. I mean, cause I'm a morning person. So, okay. Yeah. I can perform on a test uh, when I'm prepared, when I'm regulated, when I've had a good night's sleep, when I went on a long walk first, you know, all of that. Problem with school environments is that many of them don't really understand, well, one, they don't understand trauma and they also don't understand the importance of mobility. And so, you know, we're often restricting the major uh, avenue that children have to regulate their state by forcing them to sit in chairs, by asking them to be sedentary, by asking them to be still, by uh, requesting eye contact when it's not spontaneous. All of these things are throwing a child further up the continuum of, of arousal into what's com called compliance. And so what's really confusing is that sometimes you have children that are very compliant. You think, oh, what a good child. But really, a lot of those children are using strategies of dissociation uh, in order to uh, downregulate so that they can do what you want, but they're not following their spontaneous need for movement and for social behavior and connection with others. So there's lots of things about the traditional model of academics. It's really based in our history. I think I go back to uh, my analyst many years ago. He was in boarding schools in a very prestigious uh, boarding academy in England. Of course, they caned him there. Uh, 
uh, and he still mm. cannot uh, read poetry mm. because they caned him for a Woodworth um, uh, poem that he couldn't cite. Uh, but one of the things he, they called this really prestigious institution was the nursery of the empire. So, you know, we really are looking at academic environments having a history of, of a military agenda uh, and a militant agenda. And so we need to be thinking about how does that uh, continue on in an unconscious way as our, our epigenetic inheritance, you know, mm -hmm. that we want to control, that we think teachings about someone standing up in the front of a class and everyone's sitting and listening. Uh, and in fact, you can see that as soon as I'm asked to just talk, looking at a picture, I can't even remember what I'm talking about, right? Because that's a form of the nervous system going, this doesn't feel good. I'm excited to be here. I'm a little nervous. And that's just putting me a little too far outside of my window of tolerance. And I'm 53 years old and I have lots of techniques and tricks. Think about a child this age in school. What's he going to use? You know, he's going to use dissociation. Yeah, and, and often even the, the demands being placed on the kid may really outpace their you know neurodevelopmental level. Um, yet there seems to be no no shortage of continuing to place demands on kids that aren't capable of of meeting those demands. Especially as we look at you know children that have a trauma history or or perhaps have a, a disability with you know uh, communication differences or whatever it may be that make it right. more challenging. Yeah, well, I think a lot of administrators are pinched financially and don't feel supported themselves. And then they're really uh, trained in the old school way of like seeking compliance and controlling right. behavior. And we have an entire generation that was raised on this idea of operant conditioning. And what we learn from neuroscience and the study of trauma, which is just amazing when you really recognize it, is that operant conditioning is actually not a good method of raising children. It's not effective. It's not effective in terms of punishment. And reward is also not effective. Uh, because reward diminishes over time. What you really want is to optimize relational reward and sensory reward. Those are the two systems you really want to engage as an educator. You want to be in relationship. Like I saw this one, you see these videos where the teacher, like she had a little thing that had a check mark, music, science, and a heart. And the child, when they came in, would hit whatever one. If it was music, they mm -hmm. did a jig together. And if it was the check mark, they did a high five. And if it was a heart, they did a hug. And I saw children launch into her for a hug. And other children were like, nope, we'll do the dance. <laughs> you know, and it's all based on this incredible sensitivity to the neuroceptive and the physiological, the somatic safety of a child and what they need and who they are. And that that in and of itself would have such a powerful effect on setting a tone for the classroom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about some super exciting information coming out of neuroscience and the study of trauma. Uh, that I think will speak to all of us as adults who have experienced trauma. I certainly have. Um, had a very profound traumatic childhood, and which is what launched my incredible interest in understanding my family and myself uh, and other families, of course. So one of the things uh, I think we all are seeking at a very deep level is this feeling of being fully alive. We want to feel fully alive. And we know that there's some damaging ways that that impulse is manifested. Uh, for some of us, it may be that we seek drugs because it gives us this feeling of being alive. Or we might seek, you know, in adults, they can have compulsive sexual promiscuous behaviors. Or in adolescents, they can seek high-risk behaviors, you know, where they want to do, they want to drive in a car really fast, or they want to do really risky things on a motorcycle, or um, they just take lots of risk. And there's something about adolescence that's already normal in that way, to be seeking novel experience, to be out there uh, taking risk. But if there's an impairment to neurodevelopment due to early stress, there will be an over-dependency of the brain to feel alive by taking risk and doing these more um, socially risky and antisocial behaviors. And it's biologically driven. So you can tell a child as much as you want not to drink alcohol and wear a seatbelt and don't drink and drive. But what you'll find is if this need to feel alive is not accessible to the child, they will reach out to these alternative methods of having that sensation. And even in domestic violence, there's a dynamic of needing to fight to feel real. In sex, it's often that there needs to be violence. So there needs to be a sense of danger in order to connect and to feel fully alive. And there's so many applications to how this happens. And it's really built into the brain 
uh, early on, and it's something for us to really think about. So I want to just give you a little science. Um, this is a little science section. I won't torture you with this throughout the hour, but we, we love um, science here, so it's it's all good. Wonderful, that's good. <laughs> so. Um, Ruth Lanius is a neuroscientist studying trauma. Um, she works very closely with Bessel van der Kolk, and this is her uh, research that she's publishing. So all information comes in through the brainstem. This is what Bruce Perry understood, information about what's going on in my body. Like right now, it's kind of warm, a little tight, but I feel pretty good. I'm kind of excited. Um, my fingers are a little cold. Um, yeah, my breath is in my chest. It's not in my belly. I'm too excited for that that belly breath right now and um you know and i'm aware of my room you know it's my practice it's a nice space and i'm aware of the slide so raw information is what's happening inside of my body coming in and that is called interoception and extraception is bringing in information from the environment uh so that i know what's going on around me and so what happens with this information is it goes up two avenues and eventually reaches the cortex and what the goal here is for it to reach the cortex, both the extraceptive and the interoceptive, and for there to be sensory integration. And when sensory integration occurs, we have a feeling of being fully alive. So I'm going to just talk about the first one. So the TPJ, that's the temporal parietal junction. You don't need to know that unless you're a science junkie. I just put that in there so I remember because I always forget. It's extraception. It's information about the environment. And it is moving through this motor vestibular system. It has to do with the head position, right? And that little child turned his head because he loves his mommy. He's like, I trust you, right? So it's head movement. Uh, it's movement in space. It's as the movement of, the, of your body moves. So this is super important um, because some children don't really have a sense. Uh, of where their body is in space, and there's lots of reasons for that. But you'll see it because some children, you know, um, they're always bumping into things, or they're always smashing you in the face and hurting you when you're playing a physical game. They always take it too far. They don't know where you are. They're poking you, or it's like physically exhausting experience to be with some of these children. Um, uh, you know, or or you'll have a child that's sedentary and doesn't really move and says, "I'm fine," but you know, they're on screens all the time, and like this system is completely starved. Uh, so this system is absolutely critical to be online uh, for us to feel fully alive. We have to feel our body in space spontaneously moving, spontaneously moving, not moving the way that the school system wants you to move, but moving the way your impulse in your body chooses to move. And when trauma happens, particularly in complex early trauma, this connection is broken. And that's why you have people that often don't have a sense of their bodies. They are very clumsy. Um, they get hurt very easily. They have lots of trouble with physical activity. Um, they go on a hike and they fall down. Um, they bump into things uh, because, or they might even tell you, I don't really feel my body in space, or they're afraid to dance. So I'm really interested in um, emerging practices like movement medicine, which is a practice of moving the body through music and really beautiful narrative. David Mooney is one that does this. That's very self-affirming. And then all you do is just allow yourself to move in the way you spontaneously want to, not choreographed, right? But just pure movement. You know, even walking can do that. And so once that information comes into the cortex, then there's this opportunity to be fully alive. And that's when the full cortex comes online and children can learn and they can listen and they can like, oh my gosh, Johnny shared today. <laughs> How amazing. Yeah, because he wasn't completely flooded and in fight flight all the time. So that's one piece. The other piece is interoception. And you'll notice for those of us that have trauma and many of us do, when I say to someone, How does that feel in their body? They'll say, Fine, I'm good. Yeah. And then they'll go on to another story about something that happened. <laughs> like, well, fine and good is not a sensory word. It's a cognitive word. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a cerebral relationship to your body. And what I'm asking for is what is happening in your body right now? And as you're listening, you might even just check in. You know, and a good place to begin is where is your breath? So my breath is moving down into the diaphragm because I'm having fun. <laughs> And I know you're there. I can hear you, you know. Uh, you know, like, yeah, I have a pulsation in all my body. It's kind of tingly or, you know, and really developing language 
for physical experience, that's a big piece of interoception. Of course, it's also included in this is the ability to know what you're feeling and to know what's going on inside of you. But when you're in a state, particularly as a young child, where the world is dangerous, it's not safe enough to really pay attention to your body. And so this interoceptive information goes through the insula, and you can see there with the mother and the baby. And the I love this picture because um, this is awareness of sensory experience. He is, or she, I can't tell, this little one is feeling the mother. Mm -hmm. And what he's really feeling is a mother who is in a state of well-being. And look how he sort of enjoying being on her, mm -hmm. you know? And so he's learning about his own sensory experience through his touch and connection to her. And that is really the biggest piece of uh, fathering and mothering and being an auntie and a grandma. This is what the tribe teaches children. Mm. And when it goes through the insula and then it comes up into the cortex, now we have internal sensation with where my body is in space and what's going on and what's everywhere come together and I feel alive. And that's why, you know, like I've taken to doing like extended walks. So I used to do an hour walk, but sometimes if I have time, it'll be like a two and a half hour walk. And what I find is the longer I'm walking, the more alive I feel. And a lot of that's because I move out of the mind state into these parts of the system where I'm getting lots of feedback, I'm moving, I'm doing all of that, what they call motor vestibular movement that really stimulates the, the TPJ. And I'm also aware of my body and my breath. And, you know, so when you think about schools, how are we healing these parts of the brain in children who it's been disrupted? Because if children don't have interceptive awareness, they often have a sense of numbness. They don't even feel their body. And I have clients with complex trauma. I treat adults too that come in and I go, where's your body? They go, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And we can live our life that way in certain jobs because our society is very interested in cortical functioning, right? You know, spreadsheets and being on a screen, which is very imagistically stimulating and tends to shut down all of the other sensory systems because image is such a powerful sensory stimuli and we're so highly rewarded when we're looking at screens that we begin to starve the other parts of the system and that's why when you get off your computer sometimes you feel like where am i and you're hungry or or you're not hungry and you should be you know and you're kind of grouchy and you're not paying attention to anybody and you're not picking up on social cues because you're you're really your sensory integration isn't there hmm. so one of the things I think about, like even the expression of emotion and, 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 you know, like anger, like, um, you know, sometimes when my husband's upset about work or something, he's angry, I can kind of shut down because of my history. And then, then he feels abandoned. So what I've taken to do is get up and stand up and I move while he's angry and I listen and I mirror, but I keep moving and I can stay in it and I can really meet him in his pain and meet him where he is because I'm moving my body. And so when you're working with children that are uh, chronically dysregulated and expressing a lot of uh, negative affect uh, because they're in pain and life's hard, um, what's your body doing? Are you trying to slow down, shut down, and close? Or are you using your own motor vestibular intelligence uh, to stay aware of yourself, to pr practice your breath, to notice what your body wants to do? If you want to move spontaneously, whatever you want to do, whatever feels good, as you're listening, and you can be so much more there for people you love, whether it's your partner or your child or your students. Um, so teachers should be moving as well and spontaneously. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about what often happens in, in a classroom setting, you know, especially with a lot of the kids that, that we find are more likely to be restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, even exposed to things like corporal punishment. You know, these are kids that are having a difficult time, um, are having a, a hard time uh, regulating potentially. And But the, the response is not, you know, I think about, you know, I know you're going to get more into co-regulation, but, you know, as we, we think about where the kids really need help regulating, what, what they're often met with is demands for compliance 
or yeah. you know you, you talk about the movement and you know maybe that movement well likely that movement is serving a function for the child mm -hmm. yet Absolutely. the response is to to stop that movement um right. so so i think many times what what is done in our our classroom settings is really counter to what's uh helpful to the kid and, and you know again you know being mindful of the educator as well um yeah. you know um you know they may become dysregulated through all of that also yeah uh, how do we you know and, and this is the, probably the million dollar question here but you know how do we further change that how do we raise more awareness because you know once you become aware of some of these things it seems like oh well that makes perfect sense but so much no, of what we're doing application though yeah yeah and, and so much of what we're doing you, you know you mentioned earlier is steeped in you know classical behaviorism that was was performed on rats and pigeons and mm -hmm. uh you know yet um you know we have all this neuroscience there to help us um any thoughts well, yeah, I mean, there's two sides to it, right? What do you do once the child's already out of control and how do you prevent the child from being out of control? And we're sort of like not really sure what we're doing on either end. It's, it's both are very challenging. So just to meet the issue around a child actually starting to move in ways that is overwhelming, maybe they're pushing chairs, maybe they're pushing a table, knocking things over. So uh, in terms of mobilization, what you don't want to do is you don't want to restrain because from a nervous system perspective, what you're doing is actually preventing the child from the flight response and you're going to throw them in a more severe uh, nervous system response of profound dissociation. And so what you want to do, the problem with the seclusion rooms is that they are they're really operating on the fantasy of what we need. We need them to stop moving. <laughs> That's what we need. So what are we going to do to make them stop moving because it's making me dysregulated. So of course, like as a teacher, it's really frightening to have a child do that because there's this like flock behavior, right? Where one chicken starts losing it and the rest of them are flapping their wings and it starts to, like, oh my gosh, it's chaos, right? So, so it's a super challenge for teachers. And so I think we need to make sure we're offering teachers lots of support, like where there's someone that can come in and aid and, you know, protect and support the teacher. But one of the things I would do with a child that's doing that is I would move them outside. So I would move them into a safer place where they can move and, and yell and whatever, but I would move with them if they're safe enough uh, and, and have someone moving with them outside and engaging them or not engaging them, you know, just being with them, but moving the body, walking around the playground, um, taking in the nature that's often in a playground, mm -hmm. which is going to offer a lot of cues of safety, right? Just the sound of birds and wind and the trees and all of that, and also just the freedom for his body to move or her body to move where she doesn't feel like you are too close and then it's making it worse. So the more a child moves, the more they're moving into this system. The, the TPJ and the insula are being activated, right? Because the child has no interceptive awareness probably when they're in rage. It, it, they just can't access that. But what they can do is get into motor vestibular movement and then as they're moving, um, you can move and then eventually you'll see them come online enough where they look at you or you see some sort of like, you know, bid for connection. Then you can throw a ball, you can throw a ball back and forth or, you know, a dodgeball so it doesn't hurt you if it hits you uh, or get in a swing or something like that. But even a swing is restrained at a certain level. So you have to just let the child move spontaneously. Spontaneous movement is the most important piece here uh, because spontaneous movement implies safety. And so that's why restraint is the opposite of what the stress response system and the nervous system really requires. And not just the nervous system, as you can see, this is a whole, uh, it's the whole brain that's involved in this. So that's what mm -hmm. I would say. And then in terms of prevention, um, the prevention would be, be really aware of what groups are like for children and give children lots of alternatives when being in a group does no longer serve them. And also get comfortable with children speaking to each other and talking to each other and create environments where children can use um, social engagement as a way to regulate because they use it all the time. And if you are, if you require that they all look at you and listen to you while you're talking, you're actually, that's really, um, that's like a withdrawal from their system. And you're going like, you just need to understand that if you're doing that, try to not do that for very long because that's asking a great deal when they're already navigating relationship, navigating everything around them. Um, they're navigating, uh, the noise of so many children. Mm -hmm. I mean, a sensory experience is so overloaded. So if the child has autism or they have early trauma, um, they are just probably hanging on the seat of their pants, honestly. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so, right? 
Yeah, and I love what you said about kind of the brain coming back online. And I think that's what a lot of people miss is that, you know, in in doing what you're suggesting and and allowing some movement and allowing some space and not being threatening and being regulated yourself in doing some of those things, allowing the child the ability to come back online is a child that you can begin to reach. But, you know, what we see sometimes, and, and, you know, you mentioned the the restraint, what's what's interesting too to me is that... um, how many times I've heard this, that um, kids are put into seclusion so that they can self-regulate. Uh, I cannot imagine anything self-regulating about being thrown into a room against your will and having the door held right. shut. No, but that's very like, often. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Often well, because it kind of looks like self-regulate because right. they go into dissociation compliance. Right. And so now their nervous system is completely trashed and they're just sitting there like, uh, and you can kind of tell because they're sort of stony and they're not looking at you and they're mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and short answers. And then they go back in and they sit frozen for the rest of the day. And that's what you've taught them. You've taught mm-hmm. them to be afraid uh, in this environment. And then they go home and they scream and yell at their mom and they have tantrums and they can't go to bed or, on time and they're not hungry or they're overeating or they're just a wreck. And the parent's like, what is going on? It's like, yeah, it's hard. That's what's going mm-hmm. on is your child's been in school all day with no co-regulation uh, and with a punitive system that tells them not to trust their body and that what their body's impulses are are not correct. Uh, and so this is how we get disconnected from our bodies all the way into adulthood. And I'm treating adults all the time, many of our teachers, about mm-hmm. where is your body and how they abandon the body because it wasn't safe to be in your body. And also really intense feelings weren't safe. And so they're cutting off from that as well. So they have shame instead, which constantly cuts them off from feeling anything and allows them to comply to what the requirements of the authority is asking which is like the last thing we really want. That's not feeling fully yeah. alive. <laughs> and, and we see that a lot with kids. We see a lot of kids that begin to feel that that they're no good, that they're worthless, that they can't meet shame. anybody's expectation. Yeah, they, they yeah. feel the shame. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because shame, uh, Rizanius was talking about this. She was saying shame is basically a substitute for when you learn in your environment that emotion, raw emotion, is futile. It doesn't mm-hmm. help you in the world. Mm-hmm. It's futile. Mm-hmm. So you abandon feeling and you don't even know what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's how you survive in a compliance-dominated culture mm-hmm. that cannot allow people to have their feelings. That's why I'm trying to move and, like, you know, be in my spontaneous body when my husband's upset because I want to show up for his anger because it's right. valid. Right. It's okay right. to be angry. Right. And, and I want him to be able to talk about it and move through it so that he's not living in shame and I'm not living in shame and my children and grandchildren aren't right. This is what we're mm-hmm. trying to, this is what Brenda Brown is always get, get rid of shame. Well, uh, we've learned at a brain level at a lower brain level, just it instantly cuts off feeling. We don't even know we have feelings. We just know that we feel bad mm-hmm. and that we're shamed, right? We just know, Oh, something's wrong with me. That's not even a reality. It's just, it's a superimposed uh, remedy for an unsafe emotional environment which is why we should be teaching emotional intelligence and regulation in school uh, before we even move on to science. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I love this quote, Ruth Lanius. It's really um, hers, but it should have been. It's actually Ruth Lanius quoting Jane Ayers, uh, who's an OT, so sorry for the misquote. She quoted it in 2005, that motor vestibular awareness and the sense of gravitational security. Um, oh, actually, this is Ruth. It was another quote I was thinking about. What, what Ayers was talking about is that your connection to Mother Earth and your gravitational uh, relationship is the a priori relationship, even before that of your mother, which is stunning because, you know, I'm always talking about the relationship to the mother. And it's absolutely true in a neurological sense, because if you don't know where your body is in space, you're not connected and you can't connect to others. And what Ruth Lanius is saying is motor vestibular awareness, which is like your ability to move, your ability to know your sense of balance, to move your head, to know where you are in space, uh, all of that uh, gives you a sense of gravitational security. And that comes from curiosity and gravitational movement within the safety of a relationship to another person. Mm -hmm. So someone who is curious about you, who you're curious about life because of them, and because you know where your body is in relationship to them and 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 to your surroundings, um, so when we go against the body, when we hit the body, restrain the body, when we shut children's physiological, motor vestibular experience down because we want compliance. Look at me, 
listen mm-hmm. to me, right? The holding, right? It's always the holding, right? Because the child wants to get away and doesn't want to look. If we started to follow the flight response in children and trust it and let them take flight and let them find their security and walk with them and be with them and then let them come to us when they're ready. This is how we build the foundation of, neuro, of, of really a, the stress response system being grounded in our connection to the earth mm-hmm. and that we're, we can trust the body. Yeah. So given that, well, Bruce Perry knew this like 20 years ago. Uh, and so he really talks about flipping things upside down. So as a culture, we're very cortical, we're very cognitive, we're very behavioral. That's why we like behavioral interventions because they're very cortical, they're very logical. Uh, we like, we're starting to understand relationship and being able to mirror feelings in a child and that sort of thing. That's more limbic. But if we go even beneath that to children that are just agitated, where their state of arousal is active, activated, then we want to go from the bottom up. So instead of thinking about how do we teach children consequences, lecture them about how what they did was wrong, what are they going to do next, let's get a behavioral plan, and all this mm-hmm. stuff. It's such a waste of air. This is all this talking, so much talking. And the child is zoning out while we're doing it mm-hmm. and trying to comply, right, just to get away from us as soon as they can. So really, if we think about regulate ourselves, right, which is welcomed touch, is restraint welcomed? (laughs) No. No. (laughs) Right? Prosodic tone of voice. How many of us were taught the firm voice when I mean it? I'm telling you, stop that right now, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Oh, my gosh. That's my mother's voice. (laughs) (laughs) We're already lost the game when we're there, when we're using that firm tone of voice. Um, we're activating alarm in our children. And if we do that chronically, it creates a milieu of that kind of environment in which the brain is growing. And we don't get what we want when we do that because we overactivate the lower brain and then they become hyper-reactive and their lower brain is actually larger physically. And then they look at the world as a place to be vigilant and, and to expect threat. So instead, what we're trying to do is welcomed eye contact not look at me when i'm talking to you but hey are you there mm-hmm. you know or looking for when they look at us and smiling back and taking it slow and easy because mm-hmm. children will but i work with a lot of traumatized children and they often don't look at me until the last 10 minutes of the session and then every once in a while give me a really long connect and I'm like oh that's so amazing mm-hmm. and a lot of times it happens when i'm pushing them in the hammock you know and they're getting me touching them push 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 all that motor vestibular, they're chatting, and then all of a sudden I get the eye contact, you know, or they're in the mm-hmm. dollhouse or the sand tray and they're playing and they're playing and finally they, they look at me. It's a spontaneous thing. It happens when the physiology of the child feels safe. So we should not ever require it. Watch our facial expression, mm-hmm. right? I'm always extra expressive with traumatized children because a neutral face will be read as a threat because they're always looking for threat, not yeah. on purpose. Yeah, well, you, you know, does. yeah. Well, I mean, what you're bringing up right now um, really, really strikes something with me because it, it's, um, you know, so often people are looking at what the child can do differently, how the child can change. What do we need to do to the child? And people neglect to, to reflect on how important they themselves are to the situation that may, you know, and, and, and again, in many situations, um, it has been a perhaps, and, and, and I'm not, you know, just using this as an example, but perhaps a, a well-meaning teacher or parent or whoever it may be that rather Absolutely. than de-escalating the situation is escalating um, and, and not realizing. And I love the, the what's the quote from from uh, Bruce Perry about kind of our, our emotions being contagions that, you know, if we're escalated and we're using that tone of voice and, you know, mm-hmm. that that is so um, has so much impact on the child that we're working with. Well, but a lot of us as teachers and educators are traumatized ourselves and we right. don't have skills to like do the interoceptive reflection like, oh, let me slow down and feel my own body for a minute. This kid is seriously driving me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm losing it. You know, like, of course you are. My God, yeah. these are really challenging experiences and like most people couldn't do it. So being a teacher is hard enough. 
So to me, it's really like about the teacher valuing their own physical experience, their own physiology, um, and knowing that just their own breath and um, pausing for themselves and just allowing doing really long extended out breaths and moving their body and maybe going and doing something they just want to do. Like, I'm going to go get a bite of my sandwich. Yeah, I know we're still in math lesson. I'm eating. Thank you. It's what you do because eating is regulating and that might be what you need to do or go get a drink of water or chew some gum or go out and talk to another teacher for a minute and get some co-regulation yourself or call a teacher in and try to do it sooner before it's completely hit the fan, you know, mm-hmm. um, right? Yeah, and movement. And the other piece is like, you know, teachers are so alone, you know, I think they really need more community to be able to help them with these children and think about what does the child need and what does the behavior mean? Because it's all coming from the lower brain and there's physiological origins to it. And we know that trauma is a physiological injury more than a psychological one. And the more we can appreciate that it is, um, like when I was talking about this, this here, this circuitry, uh, both of these circuitries are blocked for people that have trauma or they're offline a lot of the time. It's a physiological experience mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. needs to be treated that way and thought mm-hmm. of that way. Yeah. You know, we had a conversation. I'm trying to remember who the conversation was with uh, recently talking about some of the practices, some of the trauma informed practices. And, and really there, there was this moment where we were talking about the importance of it's not just about what we're doing for the kids and to support the kids, but it's what we're doing to support the teachers and the staff oh, and, and everyone in that environment. And, and you know, right. I, I think that's really important because, you know, I, I'm glad to see words like uh, trauma-informed getting more um, traction in, in schools and in other places. But if it's only a buzzword and not really getting to the practices that need to support not only the kids, but the staff, we're not going to get right. where we need to get. Right. Um, I yeah. do want to let you know, because I, I told you that I would, We're, we've been running for about 45 minutes. So I want to let people know that may have questions. We've had a lot of comments going through the uh, comment section here. But if anybody has specific questions, uh, I just want to give you a chance to, to bring those up as well. So, Robin, I just wanted to mention that because yeah. I wanted you to and What I'm going to do is uh, I'm just going to move through this pretty quickly so people can actually talk to me. Um, and, you know, we can we can share this slide if we want. You know, sure. so people can have it for later. So this is just to understand that lower brain is important. And once a child's online, then to move in feeling and connection and mirroring feelings, because I'm sure you've had people mirror your feelings where you're like, shut up. I don't want to hear that. Like it makes you angrier to have someone mirror feelings. It's just because you're more dysregulated and you really just need their presence uh, more than like language. And then you can go to all these reasonable, you know, problem solving, talking, sharing boundaries, telling the story, explaining later. So I'm just going to move quickly through here. This one idea I want to really have you think about, which is regulation tends to be, you tend to get more dysregulated over the course of the day. So when you're thinking about prefrontal things that require a lot of energy, you know, make sure you do those earlier in the day when the child is available. And a lot of math teachers already know that and they try to get the math in early. But the other thing is to recognize there's a huge transition between home and school and children are super dysregulated often when they come to school, even though they appear compliant. And so doing something that activates the motor vestibular system and allows children to become aware of their body and whether that's music music and you do music and you can do a guided sort of uh, music experience where they feel their toes and you know feel their face and feel their head and scratch each other's back or whatever you know but to do things where you're really getting that that whole system online where they're fully there uh, because they have to recover from the fact that they left home a lot of kids have sensory problems they don't like to wear clothes or the clothes never fit or they just don't like any transition because they can't predict it and life's very overwhelming very easily and you know particularly autistic children and traumatized children often can't use uh, facial expression and the nuances of, you know, smiling and talking and everything we communicate facially is a way to regulate. So they really need a lot of predictability. And so having a predictable motor vestibular rich experience first thing in the morning at school and letting children come into more difficult coursework when they are ready and helping them learn when do you know you're ready, how do you know, what's happening in your body, that would go a long way prevent these outbursts later where children are being forced and they're complying. They're complying a lot of times first thing they walk in that door. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about spanking because it's a big piece for me and it's something I think we all need to really think about. Um, We know that um, violence against children is twice that of spousal abuse 
and that's not even spanking in the U.S. Uh, we know that people that have experienced physical abuse uh, are more likely to have other adverse childhood experiences. I can't really get into the study, but um, I can certainly give you a link and you can learn lots about it. It's a very important study. We know that um, people that have experienced physical abuse are seven times more likely to have an ADHD diagnosis. Well, of course, because this is not really ADHD as much as it is dysregulation of arousal, right? And we know that there's a multi-generational transmission because our nervous systems are stress. I don't want to just say nervous system. The whole stress response system network is disorganized. And so if we can do one thing uh, to really change uh, our culture and our culture's attitude towards children, it is to stop hitting them. We know that children are physically punished. Uh, we're more likely to think if we were punished, if we're in a poorer uh, socioeconomic status, if we're under 30, if our community condones it and our children are, no surprise, two to five, because those verbal centers and the prefrontal cortex is not online yet, and we don't really know how to be with the physiology of children. That's what we're really learning. Uh, you know, if I can just jump in real quick on that slide, yeah. so, something surprised me a little bit, uh, and that, yeah. that, that was you said you're more likely to spank if you're under thirty. And I guess my my hope was, uh, and and being a little older myself, uh, you know, well, well over thirty, but my hope was that things were improving and that we were seeing. Oh yeah, yeah, For sure okay, they are. okay, for sure okay, they okay. are. But but yeah. young 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 younger being parents young. as a whole are still yeah. It's okay. just harder. It just indicates, I think, probably more stress. But mm -hmm. yes, there's definitely a change in in uh, public opinion, okay. but not enough of one. Um, it is correlated to all the things we don't want to see: increased aggression, defiance, lack of empathy, inability to have peer relationships, poor quality with the parent, dishonesty, greater ability to to conceal, uh, delayed moral development, and reduces social engagement. It reduces the brain. In the prefrontal area, it is associated with lower IQ, developmental delays, lower receptive vocabulary, poor executive function. All of this is because the mechanism is it's disrupting the stress response system. Uh, we know that children that, uh, we know that harsh parenting harms the brain and that children that are exposed to anger, hitting, yelling uh, when they're younger have smaller brain structures actually in adolescence. And so if we're looking for their adolescence to be easier, we need to find more peaceful, co-regulatory ways to treat them. And we know that that developmental injury cascades over time. Uh, a mother's affection does not mediate the risks associated with spanking. And there was one study that showed expressing warmth after hitting a child, spanking them is increased, associated with the child having an increased chance of anxiety, which makes sense, just like interpersonal violence. Mm. Um, we know that harsh punishment of small children has a transactional cascading effect on brain development, meaning if you spank, it creates more spanking and more of the behavior that is eliciting the spanking, and it, it affects ongoing brain development, and that boys are greater risk, uh, of course, for developing antisocial behavior because of being spanked, probably for lots of uh, epigenetic reasons. Um, boys are sensitive, and they're probably historically the, the protectors, right? So they're more sensitive to perceived harm and should never be hit, which is sort of anti, it's against what the cultural norm is. It's, a, it's an adverse childhood experience. Um, I'll leave a link so you can learn more about that, but it is shown to be on the continuum of violence, uh, just like physical uh, and emotional abuse. It's highly correlated to those two things. And as alone, without any other kind of household dysfunction, Spanking is correlated to increased alcohol and drug abuse in adolescents and suicide attempts. Yeah, so it's a problem. I'm going to skip this one because I want to. I want to just say here that um, we have a online parenting program. It's wonderful. You can sign up. It's free, and you can have it if you want. Um, and before I, I could talk about this, but I'm really interested in what people have to say before I do that. Okay. Um, sure. Would, would you like to unshare your screen for a second? That way we can see each other. Yeah. We, can, we can come back to this too. So I, I'm going to go ahead and remove that and, and you should see me and I should see you. All right. All right. Great. Um, and, and I just wanted to kind of ask you one, one question or get your thoughts or response. You know, as I, as I listened to you talking about the impact of, of spanking, um, you know, I couldn't help but make the connection between kids that are being restrained and, and fully supported 
included, that we would probably see much of the same. I mean, there, there's a, a power and a, a physical uh, intervention there, and I would imagine that the uh, impacts would be very similar. What are your thoughts? I mean, I don't, I'm not following the research in that area, but I would not be surprised because, of course, shaking, holding, all of those things, um, anything that makes the child fearful of their well-being physically with you um, is going to have enduring effects. Now, not necessarily if it's a teacher that does it and you take the child out of that environment so they're not exposed to that anymore and the parents are loving and responsive, that mediation is really powerful for not having that traumatic event go into the future. But it's when the child is consistently exposed in relationships with people that are important, teachers and parents, where there's danger, that's where you get this, this traumatic response and it will get worse over time. Mm-hmm. So I want to allow some space here for questions that we might have. We've got about five more minutes uh, that we have from the audience. I see one that I'm going to bring up. But, uh, yeah, and I while... can give you 10 minutes if you need it. So okay, sounds good. Don't want to cut people um, off. But, but not five days like we talked about before. No. no. Okay. Okay. Well, well, we'll take the extra five minutes. Um, so I saw one here, but I want to encourage people to also put any questions that you have into the chat. Uh, and this one is really about kids returning to school. So as kids return to school after a traumatic year in isolation, and of course we, we, it has been a traumatic year, not just on the kids, but also parents and, and teachers, what adjusting back into a space of peer groupings in the classroom are you suggesting? Some of it, uh, I think you are saying right now, predictable uh, movements first thing in the mor- uh, school day and to get them in their body and ready to learn. So any, any thoughts on that after this, this really unusual time with COVID? Yeah, really and, and hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we need to think about what we want the child to learn because the learning has to happen in the lower brain, then the mid, you know, the mid in the prefrontal, all right? So what are we trying to teach them? And I think the number one uh, thing that children need to be learning right now is how to socially engage. So not necessarily science and math right now, but how to socially engage because they've been for extended times in situations where that has not been practiced. And so I think that means that there needs to be a lot of movement, there needs to be music, there needs to be lots of rhythmic experience, lots of predictable, lots of structure where they're allowed to have friends, where they're allowed to connect with each other in ways that is predictable and good. So not necessarily open-ended recess per se, it could be something much more structured in the classroom. We're going to do this together and that the emphasis is on noticing each other reading each other, what, what the other child is saying or feeling or thinking, um, and being in um, just nourishing that social experience so that children can begin to feel connected again, because that is what's going to help children come online, is that feeling of connection to mm-hmm. each other and mm-hmm. to you. You know, we had a member of our community who wrote an article for us at one point, a really great article, uh, and the title was uh, Regulation Before Education. And uh, it, w- it was a great article, but it really went to that piece about the importance of, of being able to regulate. And, and, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of emphasis on making up for lost time and, and all the things that have been lost. The panic. And, and, right, right. But if mm-hmm. we're not focusing on some of these other very important things, we're going to end up in a far worse situation, it seems to me. And maybe not thinking like regulation before education, but this is a kind of education. Right. Education needs to be the whole brain. We need to educate the brain to socially relate. Then, you know, the more the child socially relates and feels regulated, they're going to have spontaneous curiosity and they're going to start expressing it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be like, oh, this child wants to learn. And then you provide the opportunity for them to learn mm-hmm. and you and you share in that experience with them. So you're always educating. You're never stalling education. Education's always occurring. You're educating from a uh, priority of the lower brain up into the upper brain. You're always doing that. And Mm so we're just where we are. We're accepting where we are and trusting the body to help us learn from this huge experience we've had in the last Mm -hmm. year and a half. And those experiences are incredibly valuable. And so we want to do it the old way because it's predictive and it makes us feel secure. But to the degree that we can say, you know, we're actually going to just move into this with enormous respect for the body and for the need for community and connection. And from there, let's see what will happen. 
Let's see what we can create. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, so I have another uh, question here, uh, and I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on this. Any suggestions on how to converse with diehard supporters of spare the rod, spoil the child? Uh, mostly, I don't talk to them at this uh, <laughs> at all. But, you know, I mean, how, how you know, I mean, th- this work is hard. Convincing mm-hmm. people. I, I heard legislators recently talking about, uh, it was on a restraint seclusion bill in Maine, and, and one of the educators talked about, or excuse me, legislators talked about how when he was young, uh, you know, kids were spanked, and, and maybe we needed more of that. Um, yeah. You know, so there are definitely people out there that are, is that a legislator? A legislator yeah, so, in Maine. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. So this is a legislator that's carrying trauma in his body. Right. Who thinks that hurting little children is a way to get where you need to go, and someone probably spanked him. And the thing is, as soon as you bring up spanking, you activate someone's trauma, and then you can reinforce it. That's what we know about activating trauma is that you can reinforce it if there's not compassion. So my feeling is what I tend to do is I just am real simple and say, well, the science is really clear and it's also a violation of their human rights. And then I leave it. But then what I might talk about with this person is, what are you struggling with, by the way, with your child? Like, why is it hard? And then I'm connecting. Oh, oh, so your child... Um, won't eat at the dinner table and, 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 and won't get off the video games. Well, I wonder what's happening. And then I begin to talk to brain science. Well, this might be what's happening. I wonder if this might help or this might help. Or I really feel how hard that is, right? So we're doing what we want to do with our children with this person. We're feeling them. We're caring. We're open to their concerns. We're listening to their strategies. We're offering our own thoughts about it and we're connecting. And that's how you shift and change people is that, you know, that legislator, if I was, at a dinner with him alone, not with other people where it feels safe, I might say, tell me about your own experience with the corporal punishment, what it was like for you. you know? mm-hmm. um, and I might just want to hold that for him a little bit, or I might not go that deep. I might just do light touch and go, you know, there's some other ways. Um, and people that are frustrated, it's because they don't have enough support in different ways. And here's some other things that work better. What do you think? And you're yeah. in connection, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fantastic. And, you know, I think sometimes it's easy for, for all of us to get entrenched on, on our, our sides and our opinions on things. And, right. and, and sometimes again, if, if there's a, a traumatic background uh, or a traumatic history uh, or any, anything that might be factoring into that, um, pushing harder is not really what gets us someplace. Right. Um, you know, I've had similar conversations about things like restrained seclusion and, and, right. you know, eventually getting to a point to say, well, gee, you know, if, if we can agree that these things are um, risky and, and not only to the kids, but to the staff, if there was something that we could do that was better, that reduced risk to everybody, wouldn't we want to think about that? Um, well, and, and you can connect to where they care, you know, right. like instead of like always being problem solving, which is kind of cognitive, you can say, tell me about these kids you care about. Tell me about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Because what we know, and some neuroscientists was studying this, is like if you ask someone who's on the opposite end of your political continuum, who do you care about? And you start listening to them talk about that. It brings them online and it helps them be open to new ideas. But I think you have to connect to their heart. You know, how do you care about children? Tell me about the children you care about. Tell me about why you're in this work. Tell me about why this, what this means to you, because I can see that you care and that you, you know, and so assume people do and find out what they care about and then bridge from there to, ah, and then you get stuck here or you get stuck with this or you think you have to do this. You think you have to seclude. You think you have to hit. But let's come back to how you care about the child. And I wonder if there's other ways. Because I yeah. totally see you care, and I'm on mm-hmm. your side, mm-hmm. right? I'm with you, right? In right. this, uh, right. outside judging. Can I bring you to every meeting I go to? I'd, I'd love to have you there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's important what I you're know. saying, and and that's it's the, hard work. Yeah, and you and, need and, allies. You need that's allies right. to that's help right. you care. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. So let me Absolutely. go through a couple quick comments here, and uh, we're just about at time. But let me just go through a couple quick comments here. Uh, Beth said the science is really clear, and it's a violation of their human rights. Uh, brilliant. Uh, Carrie said, hurt people hurt people. And unfortunately, we know that people that have had traumatic experiences, you know, we may see that. Um, Let's see. Uh, A lot of lot of uh, thank yous here uh, for the presentation, you know, incredible presentation, uh, even enjoying the audience. Uh, Aaron uh, shared, I'm actually autistic, this kind of stuff happened to me. Uh, in similar ways. And, and Aaron, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And I thank you for being here. You are a, uh, a friend and ally, and, and we certainly want to, uh, you know, work with you to, to change things. Uh, but a lot of really positive comments here. 
Um, Robin, I want to thank you for taking some time to, to join us today. Uh, this has been fantastic. And, you know, we've got a, a lot of work on, on very similar fronts. And, and one of the reasons I enjoyed getting to, to meet you uh, initially was that I think there's a lot of connection between, you know, the uh, efforts that are going forward to uh, stop spanking and stop corporal punishment and, and ending restraint and seclusion. Uh, and I think a, a lot of us are, are coming from a very similar direction and, and wanting to do better, uh, wanting to understand what people have been through. And, and your work is so fantastic at uh, kind of making those connections and, and really appreciate all that that you're doing. Um, from a legislative front, um, I believe there's a new bill moving forward now related to corporal punishments in school. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. At the federal level. Okay. Okay. Uh, and what bill is that? Do you recall off the top of your head? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, okay. That's okay. I, I know it's out there. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, you'll probably be supporting that through, through your organizations as, as will yeah. we. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So we've got a lot of work to do, but but thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. And you know, Guy, I don't know if in your video you want to put some links, but I can get a link to the legislation of people because really calling your legislators is what's the big piece there. Um, there's also Tate Aldrich in Arkansas, who's actively trying to get rid of spanking in the schools there. Um, I'll send you information on the ACEs. I'll give you, so I'll give you some things that I know I referenced in the, in the, uh, the lecture and I will give you the, the PowerPoint if you'd like. That way people can hang on to things and retain them and go back and listen if they need to. Absolutely. We'd be happy to happy to share all those things. And uh, again, if anybody wants anything specific, feel free to reach out. But uh, we'll, we'll try to make those things available to folks as well. I already see say a uh, please drop the links here. Uh, we'll try to get those uh, when we can and make those available to everybody. So, you know, thank you. Um, let, let's keep uh, working together and uh, trying to make the, the world a better place. And thank you for what you're doing. Uh, I will go ahead and let you go. And I'm going to make a couple quick announcements here. But um, I, I look forward to uh, having you back on maybe at another time and uh, talking some more and going into more depth about this. Lovely. And I'll send the links. Thanks so much for doing. All righty. Sorry, I didn't mean to kind of end, end that right there. Um, let me just quickly share with you uh, what we've got coming up next. Um, and uh, we'll finish things off here. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's presentation. Uh, absolutely amazing. I thought I really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to Robin and hear about her work. Uh, I do want to let you know we've got a, another amazing guest coming up uh, next time, and that would be Dr. Mona Della Hook. And I know many of you are big fans of uh, Dr. Della Hook's work, uh, as am I. Uh, this will actually be the second time we've had uh, Dr. Della Hook on the um, program here, and we're really excited to talk about uh, brain science and how to support uh, kids. Uh, so that's coming up on Thursday, July 29th at 3.30. I uh, do want to make a quick note here um, as well. Um, I want to remind people that we've got a really good opportunity now to support the Keeping All Students Safe Act. Uh, we've been talking about that a lot on our um, website, talking a lot about uh, the Keeping All uh, Students Safe Act. Uh, we need people to reach out to their congressional representatives to their senators. Uh, it's a good time to ask people to co-sponsor the legislation as well. So it has been uh, reintroduced in both the House and Senate. We really need you to make those phone calls and connect with your representatives. Um, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could get this legislation passed this time? I do also want to mention, and we've been talking this on the page, but there is uh, an opportunity now to provide feedback to the Office of Civil Rights as part of the Department of Education. They're asking for feedback related to discipline and they're interested in disproportionality. They're interested in uh, guidance they can provide related to things like restraint and seclusion, suspension and expulsion. Your voices are really important. And I can tell you that uh, taking the time to write a short note, um, you know, we'll, we'll provide a link to it on the Facebook page, but these are opportunities for us to impact change. And we can, we can influence a change. I believe that uh, I believe that strongly that that we have the ability to to influence a, a difference. So thank you all for joining us today. Uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Uh, please, as always, share these events and uh, we've got the recordings out available. Uh, and if you need anything, get in touch with us. So thank you so much and look forward to seeing you again next time. Bye bye.